Tonight on Farage, a remarkable pact signed last night between the USA, the UK and Australia. It's all to do with nuclear submarines. Is it a good deal? Will it make the world a safer, better place? Our home affairs correspondent Mark White today has been down at Dover looking at the cross-channel migrant problem and there's been a remarkable new development. And joining me on Talking Pints, a man who said he wanted to get under Vladimir Putin's skin, and I think he did, Bill Browder. Well, it came completely out of left field. I hadn't heard any gossip. I hadn't heard any rumours. I was absolutely astonished. I got home last night and suddenly, boom, big news flash and a joint press conference that took place between Australian Premier Scott Morrison, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson and American President Joe Biden. And it was the announcement. AUKUS, it's called. Uh, it's the three of us joining together. And we are going to help Australia develop nuclear-powered submarines. Now, they had a deal with the French, who were going to provide them with diesel-powered submarines. But there's one fundamental difference. Diesel submarines have to surface once every 24 hours or so. A nuclear submarine can deep-dive and be submerged for months at a time, making it much harder for any potential enemy to detect. Now, let's be in no doubt about what this pact is about. It's about the growing militarism of China, the South China Sea, their increasingly bellicose comments about Taiwan. And this is the Anglosphere, or most of the Anglosphere, uh, getting together in an attempt to counter that threat. This is how Prime Minister Boris Johnson explained the deal to the House of Commons this morning. It's important for the House to understand that this is, AUKUS is not intended to be adversarial towards any uh, other power, uh, Mr Speaker, but it, it merely reflects the close relationship uh, that we have uh, with the United States and, and with Australia, the shared values uh, that we have and the, the sheer level of trust between us. Obviously, uh, we also have a shared interest in promoting democracy, uh, human rights, freedom of navigation and, and freedom of trade around the world. And last night in the live press conference, this was the US President Joe Biden thanking his counterparts. Thank you, Boris. And, and I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Thank you very much, pal. Appreciate it, Mr. Prime Minister. And I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Thank you very much, pal. Appreciate it, Mr. Prime Minister. Oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. It was a really very important announcement, but, of course, the duffer that is currently in the White House, Joe Biden, just couldn't remember the name of the Australian Prime Minister, and that's because he shouldn't really be in the White House. He's not up to it, but never mind. Clearly, his admirals and his generals have done, I think, a pretty good job. Now, not everybody was happy about this. Indeed, the former French ambassador to the United States, Gerard Arrow, he was far less than impressed when he said, the world is a jungle. France has just been reminded of this bitter truth. By the way, the US and the UK have stabbed her in the back in Australia. C'est la vie. So the French, not happy. Unsurprisingly, the Chinese government, not happy. And we'll come to that in a few minutes in the show. And I guess the one real disappointment is that the New Zealand Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, has said she will ban the submarines from Kiwi waters. Uh,
Well, certainly they couldn't come into our internal waters. Our legislation uh, means that nothing that is wholly or fully powered, no vessel that is wholly or fully, uh, partially or fully powered by um, nuclear energy is able to enter into our internal waters. So that that is, that is in fact um, a position that has been held across parties for a long period of time. So New Zealand, which has been part of the Five Eyes Intelligence Partnership, where we, where we share intelligence at a very high level, uh, effectively pretty much cast themselves out of it about eight weeks ago when Adern said, the New Zealand Prime Minister, that she was now forging a new strategic partnership with China. It seems to me that some people can be bought for money. So I'm afraid <laughs> New Zealand wants nothing to do with this pact whatsoever. And that's a disappointment. But they're a tiddler and they don't matter in a sense that much. It's just disappointing. But let's not underestimate the significance of what's happened here. Following Joe Biden's catastrophic withdrawal from Afghanistan, international relations were at a pretty much a low. The so-called special relationship in cold storage. NATO seeming not to function with an American president that treated it with contempt. But what has really happened here, and it's fascinating, if you think about it, the European Union, which the French have always tried to lead and dominate, was a project set up in the 1950s to deal with a series of problems that evaporated in the first half of the 20th century. NATO was set up in the 1940s to counter the threat from the Soviet Union, and that threat effectively disappeared, or mostly disappeared, with the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. What no one's been able to do is to work out how to counteract, how to stop the rapacious Chinese Communist Party. You've been engaged in a huge military build-up, and we'll talk about their naval build-up in a moment. This is the Anglosphere coming together with a 21st century solution. France's diesel-powered subs were a 20th century solution. The, 20, the, the nuclear subs are a 21st century solution. And I welcome the Anglosphere coming together. And I will say this. This deal would not have happened had it not been for Brexit. Had we been tied into an EU foreign policy, and we certainly wouldn't have gone against major French government contracts. So Brexit has allowed us to do... And, and in many ways, this was always the Brexiteers' dream. Because my view has always been that our best friends in the world speak English. And I really, really mean that. People with whom uh, we've shared so much, so many good things and so many bad things over the last century or two. So I welcome this deal, but I'm asking you, do you think... This is a good deal. Let me know your views, gbviews at gbnews.uk. Well, let's analyse the military side of this. And joining me now is former Director General of the Ministry of Defence, Rear Admiral Chris Parry. Chris, normally, a welcome to the show. Thank you. Normally, when there's a major announcement, it's been leaked, it's been trailed, um, everyone's ready for it, and it doesn't come as a surprise. As far as I'm... I mean, maybe you know different. As far as I'm concerned, this came completely out of left field last night. 
I think it reflects the very special relationship that exists between the governments of the United States, the United Kingdom and Australia. And I think it's brewing, been brewing for a while. And we've got to recognise the very close relationship that exists between the navies. Now, the Australians have been looking for a suitable submarine since about 2007 mm -hmm. and they haven't really got it right. And you're quite right. The sort of submarines they were looking at weren't right for what they wanted. 60-year-old technology. Yeah, but they're quite good submarines. I mean, the, yeah. the short-fin barracudas are good conventional submarines. Uh, but we've got to look at the distances in the Asia-Pacific. Uh, Australia's a long way from anywhere. And most of their areas of interest are out in the Pacific. And they also recognise uh, that the Chinese Navy is getting more and more competent at anti-submarine warfare. They can flood most of the South China Sea with aircraft and ships. And so you need a sophisticated battle-winning platform, and that's the nuclear submarine. Which can dive deep and stay yeah. deep for months at a time. As and it can, as long as the, the, yeah. the food supplies are yeah. there. You can stay underwater. You yeah. don't have to break surface. And let's take, take us back 40 years. The Argentinians at the end of the Falklands crisis said, you know, the British nuclear submarines represented a threat with which we cannot cope. Mm, so uh, and, and that is the same as true yeah, today. No, no, I mean, they're clearly an absolutely vital strategic weapon. Chris, none of the leaders mentioned China when they <laughs> talked about this, but let's not kid ourselves. You know, we've seen in the South China Sea a series of contested island territories on which the Chinese have built airstrips. Uh, we have, I mean, no wonder that Japan and other countries in that area have welcomed this deal uh, because we've seen a massive naval build-up. Just give the audience some idea of how big the Chinese naval build-up is. I will do that, Nigel. But before I do that, what we have to recognise is the world is actually splitting into two blocks. It's not just China. It's their fellow Eurasian autocrats with whom uh, they're actually allied at the moment, Russia and Iran. And what we're seeing is the formation of the maritime democracies acting together. And the tip of the spear is this US-Australian-UK uh, mm. uh, partnership. But it does include Japan. It will include New Zealand, Singapore, Malaysia, probably India as well. And what we're saying is you might dominate the Eurasian continent, but you're not going to dominate the world ocean because that's where we yeah. see the, basically the connections between raw materials, manufacturers and markets. It's been like that for hundreds of years. Now, what China has realised is if it's dominating Eurasia, it needs to dominate the seas around Eurasia if the Belt and Road yeah. Initiative is to be successful. So it's built up a very large navy in a very short time. It's got some very powerful cruisers and destroyers. It's about to uh, launch its third aircraft carrier. Mm. It's developed its own nuclear submarines, but I have to say they're very noisy, so you can hear them from a long way away. Well, that's a good thing. Fantastic. <laughs> and given that our astutes are probably the quietest, best submarines in the world... That's very good was, for Australia. I was told, Chris, that the speed of build-up of the Chinese Navy was the equivalent to the entire size of the Royal Navy every year. I don't know whether that's exaggeration, but, I mean, this is now a vast navy, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Uh, in terms of numbers, they've got far more than the United States have. Uh, there is a slight issue. They've, they've had a surplus of steel and they've had a surplus of shipbuilding capacity, so they've been really churning them out for economic reasons and to keep people employed. Whether they can man them and operate them is a totally different mm. matter. Uh, and the United States will tell you that looking at some of the exercises in which they've been involved, they're learning. They're learning fast, they're copying what we do, uh, but they themselves will want to test themselves. That's the key point. There are echoes here uh, for the German Imperial Navy before World War I. 
So yep. how good yep. are we? No, no, absolutely. The German Navy building and, and, and crowds protesting outside number 10. We want eight and we won't wait. New dreadnoughts. And yeah, I mean, that was the precursor yeah. to World War I. What we're hoping, of course, here yeah. is that the fact we've got this pact um, is going to be a deterrent on China, uh, perhaps launching an incursion into Taiwan. I mean, is this, Chris, and this is the last question I'm going to ask you, but it's a big question. NATO did its job. It was set up for a purpose. It did its job. NATO is not the organisation to confront the Chinese threat, is it? Well, NATO, uh, believe it or not, uh, is still pretty flexible. We've still got Russia, of course, uh, around Europe in the North Atlantic to deal with. So NATO is going to be pretty good for defending the territory of its members. There's but no I meant, question about that. But I meant in the South China Sea. But we're going to have a series of overlapping organisations now, which incorporate the previous ones, like the Five Eyes, the Five Power Defence Arrangements, and probably a loose alliance of Southeast Asian states as well. But they need the stiffening, if you like, of the Australian... UK and US alliance to be there on the ground. Uh, what I liken it to very much is the, the sheriff saying, look, I'm forming a posse here. Mm. I'm handing out the badges. We need to contain a threat, deal with basically what is a threat to the international rules-based system. Come and help us. And at the end of the day, you're absolutely right. Weakness is a provocation. And unless we can match yeah. force for force, then the Chinese will think that they can take advantage of that and maybe... So this is a good deal, yeah? Yeah, it's a very good deal. And I think strategically it's thrown China off balance, which is always a good thing. Because they were surprised, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and they will have to react in the face of something we've acted about, which is great. Thank you for joining us. That was Rear Admiral Chris Parry. Now, my next guest hasn't necessarily always been very friendly in the past to me. Crazy Farage must be stopped being just one of the tweets uh, that Mr Chen's put out. Nigel Farage is Trump's puppet, a big joke in Europe. But that's OK. Uh, you know, I mean, Wei Wa Chen is China Daily's EU bureau chief. And whilst we may have had some quite bitter disagreements in the past, we here at GB News are a beacon of free speech and open debate. So, Mr Chen, I'm going to welcome you to the programme. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Now, it would appear that the Chinese government was completely blindsided by this deal, and they've said some pretty tough things. They've said that it shows an obsolete Cold War mentality. They've said it's extremely irresponsible. They've said it's narrow-minded... And they've actually said that Australia has now turned itself into an adversary of China. What are they so scared of? Well, first I have to say, when you said, talking about my tweets, actually you didn't say it's in response to your tweets and you didn't tell the audience what your tweets were about. But anyway, that's no, part of With respect, my tweets were never personal. My tweets were criticism. OK. Of some of the okay, things the Chinese government has done with, with the Uyghur Muslims and others. So, so just to give some fair context. Okay, on that. thank you. Christmas uh, cancelled, you said. Anyway, uh, I did. I would say this is a very provocative move uh, yesterday for but surprise or no surprise, you said, because after four years of Donald Trump and uh, Pompeo with all the disruption, provocation, so China has experienced enough of those. Uh, you know, uh, confrontation from the United States, so where the trade war, tech war, you know, other uh, in the South China Sea. And uh, the yesterday, 
I, I personally see, you know, that if you look at the timing, as you mentioned, it's really to cover up for the debacle uh, in Afghanistan with Joel, and which it's not just uh, uh, in the United States, uh, uh, whether it's not just Republican, it's also some Democrats uh, criticize the Biden. Biden. It's also U.S. allies. I mean, in U.K., I mean, you are a politician. Uh, Prime Minister Johnson had to fire someone to... No, no, no. And, uh, look, 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 look. Too. I, I will agree with you. I will agree with you that the withdrawal from Afghanistan was a complete fiasco, very badly handled, um, and has led to some tensions um, amongst Western alliances. But what was launched last night was a completely new structure with the US, the UK and Australia getting together to make sure that Australia, in that part of the world, has a really efficient submarine fleet. And let's be frank, the leaders may not have mentioned it, but this is in response to a growing militarism in China. OK, your previous guest uh, and you talked about uh, military resistance. Let's uh, get the facts. China's uh, military spending is only a fraction of the United States, that of the United States. U.S. spend more than the next 10 countries combined. And China spend, like, uh, if I remember correctly, it's only 1.7% of its GDP. Actually, it's below the NATO threshold. Your so, Navy, your I Navy in particular, your Navy is growing very quickly every year. And let me explain to you what we're really scared of. You know, what we're really worried about is Taiwan. We're worried uh, that a country that seeks to be independent, that seeks to govern itself, finds itself under increasingly bellicose statements coming from the Chinese government. And we're worried, we're worried that your navy and your army may well go and try and take it. Let's uh, correct you first. If you read the British government documents, Taiwan is not a country. Okay, let's be uh, honest about that. Uh, so unless you disagree are. with your government, that's a personal view. But let's also be honest. Uh, that's uh, how many provocations uh, uh, done uh, towards uh, you know in, on the Taiwan Strait by the Trump administration to change the status quo. And the Chinese actually government has been quite consistent. They want to use peaceful means. And the using force is the last resort until Taiwan well, goes into... Well, well, using force using force for us will be the last resort. I can absolutely promise you of that. But we do see... I mean, these statements do show us, you know, that, that, that Beijing is rattled. Um, can I just finally ask you one question about Hong Kong, uh, which is a subject uh, that is very dear to the hearts of many people in the United Kingdom through historic links and family links. I mean, it seems that you are, not you personally, but your government, um, and you do work for a state media organisation, that you seem to be intent on destroying any element of democracy in Hong Kong whatsoever. Why are you doing that? Surely better to let Hong Kong flourish. Actually, you know, when you look at the facts today, Hong Kong has stabilised. Would you rather see Hong Kong street rights cocktail um, Molotov cocktail uh, being no. spot being thrown every day, and uh, actually, you look at the Hong Kong police behavior. They are so much more restrained than you know how U.S. police, New York police, NYPD deal with protests there. I was there uh, ob observing the Occupy Wall Street, and it was horrible.
and you look at the Black Lives Matter, you look at the, actually oh, even the French. Look, look, look I don't want to see. I don't want to see violence on any streets. Of course, I don't. What I'm talking about is the closing down of a free press because that is what's been going on. Actually, if you look at the read of the Hong Kong press, I actually, if you just read the South China Morning Post, you see how actually it's uh, has lots of articles. I mean, even today, if you read it, critical of both the local government or central government, it's quite free, actually. Well, so I don't okay. think we I read agree. every Hong Kong newspaper. We will agree to disagree, but we've had a civilized conversation, and I thank you for coming on and giving us your point of view. So there you have thank it. You. Both sides of an argument, which you get here on GB News. Um, there is no way, there is no way that this deal with Australia uh, is in any way threatening to China or making us a direct adversary of China. What it is saying to China is we will not allow you to walk all over other countries' territory. Um, and I think we are perhaps reminded in some ways that perhaps we could have acted sooner in the 1930s against an autocratic power that uh, started to take other pieces of territory. And by the time we did something, it was all rather too late. In a moment, we will go and speak with Mark White, who's GB News' new Home Affairs and Security correspondent. He's been down at Dover today, and he's got a very interesting and perhaps dangerous new development in the cross-channel saga. We've been debating the overnight surprise, the AUKUS Pact, and I've been asking you whether you think it is a good deal. I certainly do. It's almost a Brexiteer's dream, actually. David, on email, says, we should have spent money on housing people and give them a proper national health service, not on submarines. Well, it's the Australians that are spending the money. We'll be making money out of it, so don't worry too much about that. It's the technology that we and the Americans are going to help them with. Roger, on email, says, we should never have turned our backs on the Commonwealth countries. I said earlier, our real friends of the world speak English. I have always believed that to be true. Sarah, on email, says, the AUKUS deal came too late. Yes, Sarah, in many ways you're right, but there was nothing we could do about it. All the while we were members of the European Union. This is perhaps the first and best example of global Britain outside the European Union. I think it's a very good thing. Indeed. Now, as many of you know, I've been covering the Channel migrant crisis for well over a year, going out into the English Channel when other mainstream broadcasters seemed not to want to do so. As a political issue, it is rising up the list. In fact, it's now said in some of the Red Wall Northern seats, it is the top issue. And the reason is people voted. Old Labour voters voted Brexit and then, having gone through other parties, lent their vote to Boris Johnson in 2019 because they believed we were taking back control of our borders and they are furious. Well, I'm pleased to say that if you want to cover what's going on with the migrant crisis, GB News is absolutely committed to doing that and giving you the full story. And that's why I was so thrilled when Mark White joined us as our new Home Affairs and Security Editor. And he wasn't wasting much time, Mark, were you? You've been down in Dover today. Tell us what you've seen. Yeah, uh, another day, Nigel, when, of course, every time those conditions of flat cam out in the channel, you get a surge of these small boats being sent off from France by the criminal gangs. 
over into UK waters. It was exactly the same today. It was a bit of a late start. Um, there was a couple of boats in the morning, but by afternoon, border force were running about all over the place trying to get to the, yeah. the latest small And by afternoon, by afternoon means the boats were being launched on French beaches in broad daylight, a point that's worth it. They were, Remember. indeed, and there was a very significant incident that unfolded, perhaps an indication of the difficulties that Pretty Patel is going to face going forward. And this afternoon, uh, a French vessel, a patrol boat, uh, Formentine, mm -hmm. was following a group of migrants in a boat, uh, round about halfway across the channel, just before it entered uh, the UK waters, they had, according to the French, uh, tried to intercept that vessel. Yeah, believe it, if you like. They, they said that they wanted the, uh, the migrants to come on board their vessel to take them back to France. Those on board that small boat weren't having any of it. They jumped into the water uh, and then refused to get onto the French vessel. There was a full scale search uh, and rescue operation that was mounted at that point. A border force sent their vessel Hunter over, mm. an RNLI boat was involved and also mm. a Coast Guard helicopter. Those on board, the five people who jumped into the water, were picked up after about half an hour, taken back to Dover to be medically assessed. But I think the significance about this is Pretty Patel wants to start pushing these boats back to France now, if they decide to jump in the water, it's going to be an impossible task to do that because lives are potentially at risk, people could potentially die, uh, and I think, you know, that would be just a very, very troubling issue for Priti Patel to have to deal with. I understand that. Yeah. She was, she was in Dover today. You were saying that this is very, very important in the red wall yeah. seats. It absolutely is. She knows that. That's why, of course... Today, the very first thing she did after being reconfirmed mm. as Home Secretary is go to Dover to meet with Border Force to see exactly what they're doing. I've been down there, as you said, as yeah. well. And this is my uh, look at uh, how the day unfolded. Racing back into Dover Harbour, the Border Force vessel Hunter after its dramatic mid-channel rescue of five migrants who jumped into the water to avoid being picked up by the French. They were taken away for medical checks after spending around half an hour in the sea. It is a stark illustration of the lengths those in small boats will go to to ensure they're only ever picked up by the British. And it's an indication of the huge difficulties UK authorities are likely to face if they implement the Home Secretary's planned new policy of turning small boats back towards France. Newly reconfirmed in her post, Priti Patel visited Dover's Border Force teams on the day hundreds more made this dangerous and illegal crossing. It's on days like today, almost flat calm in the middle of the English Channel, that we see a surge in these small boats attempting to cross. But the criminal gangs are nothing if not ruthless. And even on the rougher days, they're still pushing these boats out to sea. As we filmed, two of the latest jet skis being used by Border Force officers left Dover Harbour. 
They're still training, working out the best way to intercept the small boats and turn them back. So they come in and say hello. Further up the coast, relaxing outside their beach hut, these two have seen it all over the years, including many small boats landing on the beaches here. Well, Brian and Charlie have been fishing in the waters around here for more than two decades. And, Brian, you've seen many of these small boats come ashore. What should the Home Secretary be doing to get a grip of this crisis? Well, first of all, get a grip on the French. Stopping, they're just letting them come through their countries. They're not trying. And then they're a peaceful country. Where's the water on that they're coming from? They've come through about six different countries to get here. And most of them are here for the money, not nothing else. Yeah. So the French should certainly do more. And Charlie, in terms of the turning back policy that the Home Secretary wants to adopt, do you think that could work? Well, we've seen them practising that in the Channel. And uh, the first thing I would say is it ain't going to work because um, they're just going to get a child and so, drop it into the water and that would be the end of it because it's uh, them saving lives so they wouldn't be able to turn them back. It's not the possible. I don't think it's going to be a practical solution. Plus putting, what, 200 million in for new boats to try and do it? No. It'd be a waste of time. For the moment, those brought to Dover are processed in this makeshift marquee, but with no end in sight to the numbers crossing, this new multi-million pounds assessment centre is being built nearby. Tied up here in Dover Harbour, these are just some of the small boats that Border Force have intercepted in recent days. In fact, just a tiny sample. There are hundreds more of these flimsy vessels in a storage lot not far from here. Out fishing for mackerel on Dover Beach, Chris Hurst tells me it may only be a matter of time before there's a large-scale tragedy out in the channel. But he says he understands the desperation which is driving people to make such a dangerous journey. Obviously these people are in, they're not in a good way, are they, to do that in the first place? So I don't know really, but at the same time we can't keep taking it on in our country. The Home Secretary says the small boats crisis is a top priority. But as yet more boats are intercepted and taken back to Dover, we are heading inevitably towards an alarming milestone. Within days, the number who've crossed the channel this year will reach 16,000, double the number for the whole of last year. Mark White, GB News, Dover. Mark, in all the time I've studied this, and I have really studied this for the last 18 months, very closely, pretty much every day that it's been calm, this is the first incident I've heard of, of the French Navy attempting to turn a boat around, because I have all I've ever watched them is them is them escorting, shepherding the boats into British waters. But it's also the first time I've heard of people jumping overboard. And you're right, and 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 Charlie the fisherman was right that this does present pretty Patels turn the boats around with a major problem because there could be a risk to life. But equally, not doing anything is a major risk to life. It is remarkable to me that not more people have died on these crossings over the course of the last three years. And all it would need, all it would need, is one of those new 11-metre, very flimsy boats, you know, bits of balsa wood glued into the bottom, you've seen them. All it would need is one of those to collide with the tanker, and we'd be looking at perhaps dozens of people that didn't make it. So I think there are risks uh, with trying to do something, there are risks with not doing anything. What do you think Pretty Patel 
What do you think her next move is? Well, I think she's going to give this pushback policy a try. And in addition, she's clearly trying to continue to pressure the French uh, with the £54 million uh, that we're giving the French authorities to help bolster their uh, security arrangements along the coast. But it's now 200 kilometres of French coast that they're setting these boats off from. Uh, I say the, the French, of course, they have a duty of care for those on their soil as well, not to allow them to embark on such a dangerous yeah. journey in the first place. Well, quite. But I think the, the real concern will be in the months ahead, because I noticed last year, the first year that this was really happening, about three years ago, mm. when we got to the winter months, the number of boats coming, it just died off. You didn't see any, actually, over the really bad winter months. Mm. Last year you were still seeing them, not in massive numbers, but you were still seeing them coming in rough weather. I think this yeah. year, oh. despite the weather, they're going to shove them on these boats. In a yeah, they were time. still coming in 60s, 70s, 80s a day, as you say, through January and February, I mean, not through extreme weather. And that's where we could get a tragedy in these conditions. Yeah. 16, we're heading for 16,000. We're heading for double the number last year. Um, who's to say what that number will be by the end of the year? And not, just to emphasise one last quick point, not a single person who's come across the channel this year has been deported, not one. Yeah, I mean, and when, when that process does uh, take place, it is lengthy. It's not just weeks or months, but often years. Mark White, thank you. That was a great package. And, yeah, Pretty Patel has got some real problems on her hands. Now, when President Trump was <laughs> in office, uh, there were all sorts of demonstrations on the streets and people screaming rude words and abuse at him. Um, but I never, ever thought we'd see that with Joe Biden. So I, my what the Farage moment is that the young youths attending football games, and it started in southern colleges, it's now gone to the Mets and big football stadiums. This is how they're now behaving at American football games. Well, you can guess what the bleeped-out word was, and we are well before the watershed. Uh, but it is pretty extraordinary uh, that lots and lots of young people in the crowd at lots of football games all over America, as I say, it started in the South, but it's now up in the Northeast as well, um, are shouting out this abuse, and those poor commentators uh, were finding the job impossible. I do not condone this behaviour one little bit, even though I think he shouldn't be there in office. It is not good. It shows the level of division, but it also shows that Biden's popularity, this administration's popularity, is falling very, very quickly. Now, it is the United States of America, and I often think people in this country don't understand just how independent, in many ways, these states are. So try this for size. Florida, under its governor, Ron DeSantis, will start issuing $5,000 fines today to businesses, schools and government agencies that require people to show proof of a COVID vaccination. That is what DeSantis has said. He said you'll face a $5,000 fine for every violation. That's millions and millions potentially in fines. So, if you ask anybody to give proof of vaccine, you're a business, a government agency, you could be fined $5,000. Yet, a few hours away by plane... In New York City, 
They've now begun to enforce their COVID-19 vaccine passport programme. On Monday, Mayor Bill de Blasio said last week that civilian inspectors from 13 city agencies were now expected to begin the enforcement. And isn't that extraordinary? You can be fined $5,000 in New York if you're a business and you don't make sure people have got their vaccine passport. And it's the reverse in Florida. Really quite extraordinary. In a moment, on Talking Pines, I'll be joined by somebody who said he wanted to get under Vladimir Putin's skin and has had some really very unpleasant battles with the Russian regime. Bill Browder. It's the best part of my day. Yep, it's Talking Pines. And tonight, I'm joined by Bill Browder. Bill Welcome to GB News. Welcome to Talking Pints. Now, American-born, you become a hugely successful money manager, a wealthy man, but that's not why you're here at all. You're an American, but you're now a Brit. You're carrying a British passport. And we rather like rebels on Talking Pints. We like people who, you know, stand up and, and, and make their own views in the world known. And, and your family background is really quite extraordinary. Yes. So, so um, and maybe not. My, my grandfather probably wouldn't wouldn't be so welcome here. He was the head of the American Communist Party <laughs> for um, in between 1932 and 1945. Uh, ran ran for president. Did he? Uh, he ran for president on the communist ticket against Roosevelt <laughs> in 1936 and 1940. Then got put in jail by Roosevelt, 41, pardoned in 42, and then kicked out of the Communist Party in 1945 for being too much of a capitalist and then, and then persecuted viciously in the 1950s for, for his communist background. So that's my yeah. family legacy. And were the whole family communists or was it just him? Well, it's, um, it's kind of one of those things where, you know, maybe not so extreme, but um, I, my father was a uh, professor. Um, I think all professors sort of veer to the left. Well, not all, but most. <laughs> and so my big rebellion um, in my teenage years was to um, put on a suit and tie and become a capitalist. And, uh, uh, and they really, that really was a great rebellion in my family. So they... they... <laughs> so where did you go, Wall Street or...? Well, I went to Stanford Business School. Yes. And um, graduated Stanford Business School the year that the Berlin Wall came down. Mm -hmm. And, uh, which was 1989, yep. and I had this epiphany, which was that if my grandfather was the biggest communist in America and the Berlin Wall has just come down, mm -hmm. I'm going to try to become the biggest capitalist in Eastern Europe. And so I moved to London, yep. and, and then I moved to Moscow uh, in 1996, and I set up an investment fund, um, uh, which grew to become the largest investment fund in the country with $4.5 billion of assets under management. Yep. And it was all smooth sailing and, you know, you know, up and up and up and, you know, real good stuff. Because we kind of thought, we kind of thought after the Berlin Wall had come down, that Russia was now in some way a relatively enlightened country. Well, and that's kind of why I went there. I, I kind of went there thinking it's not enlightened, but it's going to get enlightened. Okay. And, um, and then I discovered that just about every company I invested in, I was investing in big companies like Gazprom, which is the natural gas mm -hmm. company, mm -hmm. and various other big companies. The ones who sell lots to Germany these days. Lots you know, through this yep. pipeline and so on. Yep. Um, they were all being robbed blind by either corrupt officials or oligarchs. And so even though I was the largest foreign investor in the country and I owned shares of these companies, I didn't really own a share of anything because all the money was being stolen out the back door. 
And, and so I felt compelled, mainly for financial reasons at that point, um, to challenge the corruption. And I started to scream about the corruption to the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times. Mm. And, and do, I do research and then naming and shaming campaigns. And f- interestingly, for, for a brief period of time, when Vladimir Putin had just come to power, um, he was fighting with the same guys I was fighting with. The oligarchs were stealing power from him at the same time as they were stealing money from me. And so there is this expression, your enemy's enemy is your friend. Yeah. And so for a brief period of time, Vladimir Putin stepped in, and every time I would raise, uh, raise hell about these, these bad guys, he would come down like a ton of bricks on them because they, he was fighting with the same guys I was So is that why you stuck it out there? Well, I didn't, well, you, I didn't, I didn't always stick no, it out no, there. No, no, so, no, but, but, so but, I, but so, through this period, you decided, okay, I'm not... Because you could have just cut and run. I, I could have cut and run, but, but what happened was I started to expose corruption. Putin got involved. And every time he would come down on one of these guys, the share price would go up. And so I was like, wow, what a great guy. <laughs> turned, turned out, it turned out it wasn't so great. Um, and so what happened was that, that in, uh, after about four years of this, in 2003, he decided he was going to win his war with the oligarchs. And he arrested the richest oligarch in the country, a guy named Mikhail Hordakovsky, who was the owner mm. of an oil company called Yukos. Mm. He arrests him off his private jet in Siberia, puts him on trial, puts him in a cage, and allows the television cameras to film the richest man in Russia sitting in a cage. Now imagine you're the 17th richest guy in Russia. Mm. You see a, far, a guy far more powerful and smarter than you sitting in a cage. What's your natural reaction? Mm. You don't want to sit in that cage. You're going to be pretty <clears throat> nervous, yeah. So they all went to Putin and said, what do we, you know, sir, what do we have to do to not sit in the cage? Putin said, real simple, 50%. Really? Not 50% for the Russian government or 50% for the presidential administration of Russia. 50% for Vladimir Putin. You, are you seriously saying that Putin was taking these sums of money? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it's now... But these were vast companies. They were aluminium companies. They were gas companies. They were nickel companies. So I would say that 95% of the time, if you see an oligarch, a Russian oligarch, who's supposed to be worth $15 billion, he's only worth seven and a half because he's holding the stuff for Putin. So Putin... Well, it's, it's an extraordinary claim, um, uh, but it really is. Um, but why did he turn against you? So I, I continued to expose corruption, but instead of going against his enemies... You went against him. I was going, he was now a 50% shareholder in all this stuff, and so um, he, was, you know, he had to figure out, what, what do we do with this guy, this, this, guy, this mm-hmm. foreigner who's doing all this hell-raising? And um, they had three choices. They could either kill me, mm-hmm. put me in prison, or, or deport me. And I was flying back uh, to Russia from London. I was, had been living there for 10 years. And um, November 13, 2005, mm-hmm. so this was a while ago, I arrive at Sheremetyevo Airport in the VIP lounge. They stop me at the lounge. Um, and I'd been through this thing like 250 times before. Mm-hmm. They hold me overnight in the detention area. And then they deport me the next day and declare me a threat to national security of Russia. And at this point, it was like, I mean, I was lucky they didn't kill me or put me in yeah, jail. I mean, yeah. and, and Putin wasn't so brazen as he is right now. If, I, if this had been right now, I'd be a dead man. I wouldn't be sitting here. And so, so, they, so they deport you, but you've still got considerable investments and assets in the country. And so I say to myself, OK, it's not, it's not very nice to be deported. But, um, you, know, this is, you know, when the Russians turn on you, they don't tend to do so mildly. Yeah. They do so with extreme prejudice. And so I say, how can they get me further? They can... Uh, arrest my people, or they could seize the assets. Mm. 
And so I uh, evacuate all of my people, all the people that work for me, and their dependents, get them all over here to London. I then um, quickly and quietly sell every last share I have in Russia. Mm-hmm. And I get all the people out and all the money out, and I'm thinking, you know, <laughs> that, was, that was kind of scary. Yeah. Maybe I'll write a book about it someday, <laughs> which I did, but <laughs> yeah. that's another story. And, um, uh, and I thought that was the end of the story. And um, the only thing I kept was one, I kept the office in Moscow. I kept, kept paying the rent, hoping that maybe the storm would blow over and I could go back there one day. Mm. And about 18 months after I was expelled from Russia, I get a frantic call from the uh, secretary in the Moscow office saying that there's 25 police officers raiding the office. And then I call my lawyer about it in Moscow, and he says, 25 more officers raiding my office looking for your documents. So 50 officers raiding our offices looking for my documents. They get them at the law firm's office. They seize all of our official documents for our investment holding companies, which at this point were empty because we sold everything. They seize all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And the next thing we know, we no longer own our investment holding companies. This, the, the documents seized by the police were used to steal our empty investment holding companies. At this point, I hire a young lawyer named Sergei Magnitsky mm-hmm. to investigate. And I ask Sergei to figure out what's going on and stop it. Sergei goes out, does an investigation, comes back and says, there were, two, there were two parts of the scam. They wanted to steal all of your money, mm-hmm. which they didn't do. <laughs> but he said, when you were selling everything, you had a big profit, you had a billion dollars profit, you paid $230 million of capital gains tax, mm-hmm. and these guys who stole your companies went, went back to the tax authorities and applied for a $230 million illegal tax refund. They did it two days before Christmas, 2007, and it was approved and paid out the next day. Good Lord. The largest tax refund in the history of Corrupt Russia. Corrupt as hell, at every level. At every level. And so we thought, we thought, okay, Putin is a nationalist. Everyone says he's a nationalist and a mm. Russian patriot. Surely he wouldn't allow his own people to be stealing this stuff. You know, maybe they're allowed to steal foreigners' money, but not, our own, mm. not their own money. So mm. we, we, we write criminal complaints. I go on TV and radio, mm. and Sergei testifies against the officials. And instead of, going out, instead of arresting the people who stole the $230 million, they arrest Sergei, yeah. they put him in jail, yeah. they torture him for 358 days, and then they killed him <clears throat> yeah. on November 16, 2009, at the age of 37. Shocking story. Shocking story. And it became a big international story. And in fact, it even finished up, didn't it, with Donald Trump and, and Vladimir Putin discussing this very case at the big Helsinki summit. Um, has there been any sense of reparation from the Putin regime or, or, or apology for what happened? No, Putin circled the wagons. He personally got involved in the cover-up. He declared everybody innocent on the yeah. Russian side. And we couldn't get justice in Russia, so we said, how do we get justice outside of Russia? Mm. And we came up with an idea, which is they killed Sergei Magnitsky for money, for $230 million. Yeah. And they don't keep that money in Russia, they keep that money in the West. So we said, how do we get Western governments to freeze that money and to stop them from traveling to the West? And that became known as the Magnitsky Act. Yes. The United States passed the Magnitsky Act in 2012. Canada passed it in 2017. Britain passed it in 2018. The EU passed it in 2020. And now, and, and Vladimir Putin hates this more than anything because he's a rich guy whose assets can now be frozen. Yeah. Well, I mean, Bill, you have actually achieved something. I know it's shocking that the young lawyer 
uh, was killed. But you have actually achieved something significant with that act. What do you do now? Do you go on fighting this battle against Putin's regime? Well, there's a lot of other bad guys in the world. The Magnitsky Act applies not just yes. to Russians, yes. to Chinese. Yes. Um, to, uh, for example, the, uh, the Chinese officials involved in the concentration camps for the Uyghurs, um, they've been sanctioned, not just by the United States, but by UK, Canada, EU. Mm. Um, there are, there's a genocide going on in, in Myanmar and, and the, um, against the Rohingya. The generals doing that have been sanctioned. And so all of a sudden, in the name of Sergei Magnitsky, we have yeah. a tool that can go after bad guys all over the world. And you're not managing other people's money anymore. Is this what you do full-time? Yeah, now? I've gone from a, <laughs> from a hedge fund manager <laughs> to a human rights activist. Probably the well, only time you're ever going to have one sitting in this seat, a, a person Bill, who did that. I, I want to say this to you. Um, this has been one of the most sobering talking pints uh, that we've had. Uh, but I think in some ways your story is a very inspiring one. You're one man that has actually managed through your own determination to do the right thing to change the world in a little way. And that's a very, very good thing. And I thank you very much indeed for coming here and joining us on Talking Pints. Well, what a story. That was Bill Browder. Amazing. Right, as we come towards the end of the show, it is time for Barrage the Farage. You've sent in your emails and tweets, and I'm going to do my very best to answer them. Paul on email asks, who is angrier over the AUKUS deal, China or the EU? Oh, I think the French are the really angry ones because they've been found out. They were offering a 20th century solution and technology. We've offered a 21st century solution. Uh, the Chinese always huff and puff. Uh, they were just blindsided by the deal, I think, as indeed many of us were. Adrian on email asks me, here we go, over the years, which political issues did you completely misjudge or get wrong? Oh, goodness gracious me. Um, well, I think I got the European thing right. Um, there's no doubt about that. What did I completely misjudge? There must have been lots of things I completely misjudged. Um, I think I actually, I think I misjudged the British press I didn't realise how stupid they were. They always thought the UKIP message would hurt Conservative voters. They'd no understanding that in the end, it was the UKIP message that destroyed the Labour Party. And I actually thought that those Tory newspapers would come on my side and help me. And instead, they just waged a war against me. But hey, do you know what? In the end, we won and it's behind us. Stella on Twitter asks... Do you enjoy going on holiday in Europe? Of course I do. I love Europe. The thing about Europe, the beauty of Europe, is the diversity. You travel 100 miles across Europe, different languages, different wines, different cheeses. Vive la France. What I can't stand is the idea that all these different countries with different histories and cultures should be forced together under this bureaucratic rule in Brussels, where they want to harmonise everybody, homogenise everybody, even, I think, pasteurise everybody. And I'm delighted we're out, and I look forward to it being a free Europe of independent, sovereign nation-states through democracy, trading and cooperating with each other. I'll be back with you on this show next Monday evening. Coming up next, it's Colin Brazier. First, though, the weather. Hello.